Hey, Unnaturalists. I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome back to Unnatural. I feel like we haven't talked to you guys in so long. Yeah, just a couple of days. Three days. Right. Two days? Two days. Two days. I can count. But you know what? Two days is just enough time for us to bring you a brand new episode, one that I'm super excited to tell you about. This is one that I've known about ever since I was a little kid. And there are so many references in pop culture to this case. It might just be the biggest case of the 20th century in the US, maybe after the whole fiasco with, remember the Lindbergh baby, Charles Lindbergh and all that craziness, and obviously the OJ Simpson case that happened in the 90s. But this one's right up there. And not surprisingly, dozens of movies, documentaries, books, TV shows have come out in recent decades depicting the infamous events that took place in late 1957 and early 1958. And since it's the just about the 65th anniversary of this, I thought it would be fitting to take a look back on it. It took place primarily in the state of Nebraska around the capital city of Lincoln, where at the time, virtually no murders ever took place. And because of that, some would say local law enforcement were kind of woefully unprepared with what would eventually happen. Mass murderer Charles Starkweather killed over 11 innocent victims in such a short span that not only were the local police in disarray, but the public began to form an armed violent posse just to catch the killer. But the trouble was, Charles Starkweather wasn't alone in his rampage through Nebraska and eventually Wyoming. Someone who was close to a number of the victims themselves was along for the ride. This is the story of Charles Starkweather, the natural-born killer. After the horrific crimes he committed, Charles Starkweather was later described as a smart aleck, a man who life meant nothing to. And most importantly, the guy was a nihilist, which is described as the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. In the jailhouse just before his execution, Starkweather scribbled into the wall on his jail cell he wrote by the time anyone reads this i will be dead for killing 11 persons at the bottom of his note was a heart drawn around his name and the name of carol ann fugate a note that briefly touched on the horror that not only shocked and terrified a peaceful Nebraska community, 
but also captivated the entire American public late in the 1950s. So let's take you back. It's early December 1957, Lincoln, Nebraska, a growing town, capital of the state, located about an hour southwest of the largest city of Omaha. I know you've been there before. Yes. It was buzzing with holiday shoppers eager to get all their Christmas shopping done before another inevitable Nebraska snowstorm. But before the hustle and bustle of the day began, Robert Colvert was a gas station attendant who was working the overnight shift. He was eager to be done for the night when a man in a red baseball cap and a bandana over his face approached. Colvert followed the man's orders. With the money made for the night in his hands, he got into the man's car who drove north. Once they were well outside of town, the driver ordered Colvert out of the car and made sure no one would ever be able to ask him what had taken place as his body was found lying dead next to the side of the road the next day. Oh, my God. Yeah. On the side of the road? Mm-hmm. No, thanks. And it actually would take two months, but eventually police would discover that his murder was the first of a spree of killings by 19-year-old Charles Starkweather. He was 19? Did you already say that? No, that that was the first time. I was going to say that again. 19 years old. This guy who is one of the most infamous murderers in history was still a teenager. Jesus. To put things into perspective, murder was pretty uncommon in the city of Lincoln at that time. Prior to the Starkweather killing spree, only seven murders had taken place in the community in the entire decade of the 1950s. Because of the low crime rates, only three cop cruisers patrolled the city every night. At 924 Belmont Street, on the north edge of town, lived the Bartlett family. Husband Marion, his wife Velda, their two-year-old toddler Betty Jean, and Marion's 14-year-old daughter from a previous marriage, Carol Ann Fugate. Now, Carol was, by all intents and purposes, a problem child. She was growing up faster than most girls her age, Mm -hmm. especially for the time. Yeah, because this is the 50s, right? Yeah, this is the late 50s. And recently, she had been dating a boy five years her senior whom her parents didn't exactly think too highly of. That's Uh Charles Starkweather. Now, Charles was a garbage collector at the time, and he began spending a considerable amount of his days at the Bartlett's, even brought up marrying their daughter to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Their daughter, remember, who was just 14 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's when things between Charles and the Bartlett's began to take a turn for the worse. On January 21st, 1958, Charles again showed up at the Bartlett's demanding to see Carol Ann, and her mother was absolutely irate. Her father took it upon himself to kick Starkweather out of the home and he basically told him never to show his ass there again. Yeah. But guess what? He went back. Yeah. He didn't yeah. listen. He did show up again. 
Just a few moments later, Mr. Bartlett's boss received an odd telephone call saying that he wouldn't be coming into work that day. But that call wasn't made from Mr. Bartlett. It was made from Charlie Starkweather. Okay. Yeah. So he was pretending to be Mr. Bartlett. Dummy. Calling in sick. And it makes you wonder why he would do that. Yeah. Because then he made his way back to the Bartlett home with murder on his mind. In a note that was found much later in Charlie's coat pocket, presumably written by Carol Ann, it read, quote, My dad got mad and began to hit him, pushing him all over the room. Then Charlie got mad and there was no stopping him. He had a gun with him. Charlie pulled it out and my dad dropped to the floor. My mom was so mad she had a knife. Oh my God. Yeah. This just keeps escalating. She had a knife and she was going to cut him. End quote. And I'm going to paraphrase the rest here because much of the letter is kind of in broken English because remember, she's 14 years old and, you know, I don't know if schooling was her thing, but, <laughs> well, she was a problem child, you know? So oh she she goes on to detail the shooting of Mrs. Bartlett and even the killing of the poor toddler, Betty Jean, who was just <gasps> two years old. The baby. Yeah. Why you got to fucking do that? And Asshole. To make it worse, from the source that I read, Betty Jean was clubbed to death. Oh, my God. So already, Charles Starkweather has four murders under his belt. He killed that gas station attendant and then three of the Bartlett's. Oh, my God. Now, the note does indicate that Carol Ann helped with the killing of her own family members. Keep that in mind. Oh. But other accounts say that she was at school at the time. Hmm. So there's some conflicting things going on here but in her statement she says so wouldn't she be there well this isn't a note found in charlie's coat pocket oh they thought that it was in her handwriting okay but what is known is that all three bodies were taken out to a chicken coop which was located behind the house Mm -hmm. and both charlie and carol ann They both stayed at the home for the next week. So obviously, whether or not she was involved in the murders, clearly she knew about them if she was there with him for a week. Yeah. It's the same house that her family had been brutally murdered in. I can't imagine. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Carol Ann also wrote a note uh, left on the front door to kind of dissuade anybody from coming inside. And the note read, stay away. Everybody is sick with the flu, Mrs. Bartlett. And that was determined to be in her handwriting. Okay. And it was similar to the handwriting on the note then, I assume. Okay. Now, in the meantime, Charlie passed the time playing cards, throwing his hunting knife into the wall. And he also sawed off the barrel of his brother's shotgun, which he had stolen. On January 27th, Carol Ann's grandmother 
had been thinking something was amiss, and she made her way to the Bartlett home, demanding to be let inside. Carol Ann turned her away, but as she was leaving, the grandmother vowed that when she came back, the police would be with her. Yeah. So that made them decide to get the hell out of Dodge. Charlie promptly fixed the flat tire on his 49 Ford, packed everything up, including his sawed-off shotgun, and 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugate and Charlie Starkweather finally left the Bartlett home. Carol Ann's grandmother did keep her word, by the way, and the police did show up later that day. However, they didn't find anything suspicious at the time, and they left shortly thereafter. I don't think they actually went inside the home, obviously. And unfortunately, the police didn't bother looking behind the house at that chicken coop where I had told you the Bartlett's bodies had been dumped. If they had, the rampage of carnage that was about to take place may have been avoided entirely. Did they bury them or just kind of toss them? It sounded like they just kind of tossed them in the chicken coop. Oh. And how long after, how many, roughly how many days after the murders did the grandma show up? It was about a week later. Like, they she didn't had, smell anything? She had, well, I I don't know if they, the chicken coop was located pretty far behind the house. Oh. So, but the grandma, again, had known something yeah, was going on. Something because was she going had been on. calling and she had been talking to her daughter quite often and, you yeah. know, wasn't receiving any so word. So, she was like, what's up? Yeah. So, Carol Ann and Charlie made a pit stop just outside of town with Charlie buying shotgun shells and a few boxes of cartridges for his twenty two rifle. But along the way, their 49 Ford got stuck in the mud and they had to take refuge in a nearby storm cellar. Close to the cellar, they could see a house lit up in an otherwise pitch black horizon. It was the home of a 70-year-old farmer a bachelor named August Meyer. And unfortunately for August, his house just happened to be the first place within eyesight of Charlie Starkweather. Oh, no. The two made their way back to the back porch where Meyer greeted them. Now, Meyer was familiar with Charlie as he'd kind of seen him hunting around his property before, so he wasn't exactly alarmed when he saw the shotgun. They told Meyer about how their Ford had gotten stuck in the mud and he agreed to help them get it out and get it running again. He went inside to gather the necessary clothes and tools he needed, but when he came back outside, 
he was met with a blast from Charlie's shotgun, oh my God. which k- killed him almost instantly. Charlie took whatever weapons, ammunition, and money he could find from August Meyer's house before he and Carol Ann once again departed. With the help of an unsuspecting neighbor, they were able to finally get that car out of the mud and hit the road again. Can you imagine that neighbor? It's like, oh yeah, I helped that guy get out of the mud. Oh shit, he killed a bunch of people after that? Whoops. Yeah. Around the same time in Lincoln, Carol Ann's brother-in-law, along with Charlie's brother, knowing something was wrong, went out to the Bartlett's place to see what was going on. That's where they discovered the bodies of Marion Bartlett, his wife Velda, and their two-year-old all decomposing in the chicken coop. I can't imagine. Yeah, just stumbling upon that. They knew something was wrong. They had no idea that the entire family had been murdered. How wrong? Yeah. Yeah. As soon as local, as soon as the local police chief was informed of this horrific crime, not surprisingly, I guess, Charlie Starkweather was one of the first people who came into his mind. Due to some issues that Carol Ann had in town, Along with her association with Charlie, Carol Ann was thought to be a willing accomplice in the murders. That's kind of the information they were going with at the time. Mm -hmm. And by this time, the local Lincoln newspapers were all over the story. I'm sure. Because, as I mentioned, it was already the biggest murder case in the history of the area. Yeah. Yeah. But teenager Robert Jensen hadn't heard about any of that, and he was just closing up work for the day at the local shop. Robert had picked up his girlfriend, Carol King, and decided to go for a short joyride around town. And around the same time, Charlie Starkweather and Carol Ann had once again got their car stuck in the mud And lo and behold, who happened to come upon them? Well, it was Robert Jensen and his girlfriend. Why do they keep getting their dumbasses stuck in the mud? I don't know. It's January. The roads aren't nearly as good as they are these days. You know, they're not paved, a lot of them. So, yeah, I guess this happens a lot. Um, But Robert Jensen offered to help. And the couple agreed to give Starkweather and Carol Ann a ride and were directed to drive them to that storm cellar that I mentioned earlier in the story. Mm -hmm. And just a short time later, both Robert Jensen and Carol King would be the latest victims in this killing spree that wasn't over yet. Back in Lincoln, police were beginning to kind of piece together what kind of threat they were dealing with. They found the barrel to the sawed-off shotgun, several shells and cartridges, and this was all at the Bartlett home, of course. Mm -hmm. And they set out a warning to all police officers within hundreds of miles 
that they had a madman who was armed and dangerous on the loose. Meanwhile, one of the local reporters in Lincoln happened to make his way into the Bartlett home while the investigation was taking place. And apparently, he stole a picture that he found of Charlie and Carol Ann that happened to be sitting on a mantelpiece in the living room. And he immediately took the photo back to his editor and they put it on the front page of the next day's Lincoln Journal. I know you're a journalist. Can you imagine doing something like that in this day and age? Dude. (laughs) No. (laughs) It was a different time. Yeah. That's for sure. 30 years later, the that editor would actually later say that he doesn't know if he would do that in this day and age. But at the time, it seemed of the utmost importance to get their faces out there. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, by the next day, everybody in the state of Nebraska and beyond knew exactly what Charlie Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate looked like. So as the clock struck midnight on January 28th, Robert Jensen's family was kind of worried that he hadn't come home. The area was just absolutely full of fear and paranoia mm-hmm. that even the though they thought that it was foolish, they decided to call the Nebraska State Police and report him as a missing person. Descriptions of the car Starkweather was driving were now kind of being reported all over the local radio stations. Mm -hmm. And for some odd reason, Charlie and Carol Ann, who was now almost two hours away in the town of Hastings, Nebraska, decided to turn the vehicle around and head back to the scene of the horrific murders. We were just talking about this in our last case. Like sometimes for whatever reason, these killers have to go back to the scene of the crime. Just weirdos. I don't know why. It's hard to get in their head with these kind of things. But they even got within a few hundred yards of Carol Ann's home where her father and her mother and her sister were killed when they saw the sirens shining in the moonlight from the dozens upon dozens of police cars at this time. But they were spotted by no one. So Charlie ditched into this seldom used alley that he remembered from his days as being a garbage man. And they Mm kind of laid low and slept for a few hours. Yeah. And then when they awoke, they decided to drive to one of the wealthiest parts of Lincoln. And they're perusing around these affluent homes looking for the perfect place to make their next move. And eventually, they decided on a giant white mansion owned by C. Lauer Ward and his wife, Clara. Of course they did. I imagine they were just trying to get as much as they could, so they decided to try and, to try and find that most... Yeah, the... The richest uh, place the richest they could find. The richest looking house, yeah. Yeah. And when the maid... Ludmilla Fensel opened the door. She saw the redheaded Charlie Starkweather. And Charlie asked her if 
anyone else was home. And when she didn't answer, he stabbed her to death. Oh, my God. It was later determined that Ludmilla was actually deaf. So when he asked her if anybody was home and she didn't answer, it's because she didn't hear what he was saying. Not that it would have mattered to this guy because... Shut the fuck up. Clearly, he was a homicidal maniac, you know? Yeah. But the two made themselves at home and waited for the wards to come back to their place. At the same time, authorities... what? Well, I think they were, were planning on robbing them and taking their car. That's what it sounds like. Oh, well, they, they yeah, want, okay, the car makes sense. They wanted to switch cars. Yeah. I was going to say, like, why not just, if you're the only ones there, why not yeah. just go through the house and find whatever you can? Yeah, I think that was Charlie's play. It's hard to put your mind in the mind of somebody who's as crazy as he was, but yeah, I think that was the plan. And at the same time, authorities had spotted their abandoned Ford just outside August Myers' house and had set up a stakeout there, not knowing that they had already left there hours and hours before. Yeah. And even the media found out about what was going down, and officers were so convinced that they had surrounded Starkweather that they began to slowly move in on the house, Mm -hmm. and they eventually used tear gas before entering. But of course, they didn't find shit, they didn't right. find Starkweather. They didn't find Carol Ann Fugate. But they did find the body of 70-year-old August Meyer lying on his kitchen floor. Oh, my God. Authorities were not only mortified, but also dumbfounded as to where Starkweather was and who might be his next target. Yeah. Little did they know he was already waiting for his next target in the richest neighborhood in town. So, shortly after finding August Meyer, law enforcement came upon the bodies of teenagers Robert Jensen and Carol King. Oh, yeah, because they hadn't been found yet. Right. So, now they found two more bodies. And they had been reported missing the night before. Robert was lying dead in the mud with six gunshots to his head. Six? And Carol had been raped and ripped (gasps) apart with a knife. Oh, my God. What the fuck? This guy, I mean, yeah. He's just a maniac on another level. And most people, including the police and the media, assumed that Starkweather and Fugate had left the area, as one would think. Yeah. And she's just, like, complicit and just, like, hanging out, like, along for the ride. The fuck? Well... We'll get to that. And they probably thought that they had even left the state because that's almost what always happens, right? Yeah, but no, they're just on the other side of town. Yeah. Little did they know they were still in their own backyard. So C. Lauer Ward, who is the chairman of the Capitol Steelworks, had had just returned home from a meeting with the mayor about kind of everything that was going on when Charlie Starkweather greeted him at his own door. A struggle took place 
And as Ward was running away, Starkweather then shot him in the back. It was later found that his wife, Clara, had also been killed. So there's two more people who were victims of Charles Starkweather here. Yeah. So what's our body count at now? Uh, I think we're at like nine now. So because yeah, we have her family, which was three. The old guy, the gas station attendant. Oh, yeah. The gas station attendant, the couple that helped mm-hmm. them, the maid. Yeah. And now this, we're at 10. Yeah. And it's not over yet. Charlie and Carol Ann used Ward's new Packard car as their kind of new getaway car to avoid suspicion from local authorities. His new plan was now to drive as far away as he could. He wanted to go to Washington State. And around this time, the townspeople of Lincoln, Bennett, and the surrounding communities had fucking had enough. And they began forming armed posses to try and hunt down and find Starkweather, which sounds like a good idea in theory. But when you think about it, it might not be the best idea. Yeah. Because police were obviously worried because the chances of a person accidentally getting shot by a trigger-happy local would increase dramatically if this were to happen. Mm -hmm. Think about it. It's like the dead of nights. You're walking around with a loaded gun. You hear something, you shoot, and next thing you know, your neighbor is lying there dead next to you. It's giving Kyle Rittenhouse, honestly. A little bit. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a whole other story, but... By the next morning, Emily, Charlie and Carol Ann were heading west towards the Wyoming border. They stopped for gas and to grab a map in the tiny town of Broken Bow, Nebraska. And an attendant remembered asking them where they were heading, to which Charlie replied, I guess it doesn't matter anymore. Okay. It just kind of shows you the state he was in. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least he didn't kill him for Yeah. I mean asking a question. To be honest, he had been killing everything in his path at this point. So yeah. the fact that this gas ta- gas station attendant came out unscathed is pretty remarkable. It probably won't surprise you the FBI was now involved in the manhunt as well. Mm-hmm. And also the Nebraska National Guard and memos were sent out to all agencies within a giant radius of where the initial murders had occurred. Everyone was now on the lookout for Charlie Starkweather. Mm -hmm. As they should be. Yeah. And police had also found C. Lauer Ward and his wife and they're made dead at their home at this time. So now... They knew a crucial piece of information, though. What kind of car Charlie was driving? Because C. Lauer Moore's Packard was missing. Mm-hmm. So now they knew that he was in this Packard. And as they reached Wyoming, Starkweather was worried that the Packard that they were driving had been spotted. And he decided that they needed a new car again. Oh, God. That's where they came upon Merle Collison. So Merle Collison was a traveling shoe salesman, which 
was a profession at the time that was actually pretty lucrative. You don't have them anymore ever, but no. people. What went a cute door- job, though. I know it was kind of a cool job back in the day, and he was exhausted after a long day's work in the town of Douglas, and he was sleeping on the side of the road in his Buick because guess what? It's a super safe area. Nobody ever harms anyone. So he put his parking brake on and decided to take a few Zs. Now, obviously, in hindsight, Merle picked the wrong road to take a nap on that day. Charlie Starkweather woke him up with a tap on his window. When Collison refused to open the door, Starkweather shot open the window and then opened fire, killing Collison instantly. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And just at that time, a geologist named Joe Sprinkle just happened to be dry. Yeah. Like sprinkle? Like Like cake sprinkles? Like sprinkles on your cupcake. Yeah. Love that. He just happened to be driving along the highway at that exact moment. Joe had thought that there was some sort of like two vehicle accident going on and he stopped to help. And as he approached, he realized what was going on and Joe and Starkweather began to wrestle for the rifle. But also at that very moment, a Wyoming County Sheriff's deputy, William Romer, just happened to arrive on the scene. He thought there was some sort of traffic jam going on. But all the... All of the sudden, Carol Ann Fugate ran from Starkweather to the deputy, Romer, and flung herself on him, yelling, quote, it's Starkweather. He's going to kill me, end quote. Mm. So Charlie Starkweather, meanwhile, had apparently won his altercation with Joe Sprinkle, got back into his Packard, though, because he couldn't figure out how to loosen the parking brake on the other car, which apparently parking brakes were a new thing at that time. So not everybody understood how to use them. So he decided to just get back in the Packard, cut his losses and hit the road again, especially since there was a cop there. Starkweather headed back east towards Nebraska again, and Deputy Romer with Carol Ann Fugate in tow radioed for backup. Bob Ainsley... Why would he go back towards Nebraska? I don't know. I mean... He has to know the entire state, like the entire region, if not the entire country, is looking for him, and he's going to go back to Nebraska. Just... Where everybody is at. It's like these people don't even try to get away with it, you know? It's hard to apply reason to a person who is clearly in a state of madness, I guess, but yeah. So he's heading back towards Nebraska and Bob Ainsley, the police chief of Douglas, Wyoming, which again is just over the border of Nebraska. He heard the call and he and one of his deputies, they really had it out with Starkweather. It was one of those old fashioned car chases that you'd like see in one of those old movies. Mm-hmm. The cops hit Charlie's bumper with their own. And upon collision, 
the deputy fired a shot into the windshield of the Packard, which Charlie was in. A fragment of glass had nicked Charlie's ear. And thinking that he had been shot, he pulled the car over to the side of the road and got out for whatever reason. But the cops were all over him at that moment. Mm -hmm. And Charlie lied on his stomach, put his hands behind his back, and Charlie Starkweather was cuffed and finally, finally in police custody. Thank God. Because now how much time has elapsed? Between, well, the first um, murder had taken place back in early, you know, early December. But this had all been been in about forty eight hours or so. And by the next day, the nation's media had already descended on this tiny little town in Wyoming. Yeah, Carol Ann Fugate was being kept away from reporters, but Charles Starkweather was fair game. And it's crazy watching some of the footage from back then because reporters were allowed to be right up next to his jail cell. Like they, wow. were in, they were inundating him with questions, which would never be allowed to take place today. No. It was just a different day and age. It yeah. made me think of like Lee Harvey Oswald uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and the Kennedy assassination when the reporters were like right up to him the entire time. Like, yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. No. And the night Charles that night, Charles wrote his to his mom and dad. And he said, quotes, the cops up here have been more than nice to me, but these damn reporters. <laughs> The next one that comes in here is going to get a glass of water. And I think he was insinuating that he was going to throw the glass at them. Yeah. At the end of the letter, he says, quote, I'm not real sorry for what I did, because for the first time, me and Carol had some fun. What the fuck? Which is absolutely sick. And it's pretty clear that this guy gave zero shits about anyone or anything except himself and Carol Ann. Yeah. And also, this is kind of ironic. He decided that he wanted to be extradited from Wyoming to Nebraska, right? Mm-hmm. And he believed that no matter what, either state would execute him. However, he wasn't aware of one crucial fact. The governor at the time of Wyoming, Mildward Simpson, was opposed to the death penalty. So he probably should have stayed in Wyoming. Yeah. Now, Starkweather, he kind of wavered on a lot of things. At first, he said that he kidnapped Carol Ann and that she had nothing to do with the murders, right? Mm-hmm. But that story changed a number of times. Later, he testified against her at her own trial and said that she was a willing participant and that, in fact, that she enjoyed watching some of the murders take place. Now, Carol Ann has always maintained that it was Charles 
that was holding her hostage by threatening to kill her family. Her family was already dead. By also claiming that she was unaware that they were already dead. There's no way. Where would they have been? Again, they were there for a week. A week in that home. That's where, where where did she think her family was? Exactly. That's where it's it's hard for me to believe that. So Judge Harry A. Spencer, he didn't believe Carol Ann. He didn't believe that she was held hostage by Starkweather, and he determined that she had numerous opportunities to escape before she actually did. Yeah. When Starkweather was first taken to the Nebraska penitentiary after his trial, he said that he believed that he was supposed to die. He said that if he was to be executed, then Carol Ann should also be executed too. Mm. So he had changed his story quite a bit as well. Not surprisingly, Charles Starkweather was convicted of the murder of Robert Jensen. That was the only murder that he was tried for. On May 23rd, 1958, he was sentenced to death and Starkweather was executed by the electric chair at the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln, Nebraska. It was at 12.04 a.m. on June 25th. 1959. He didn't give any last words, but in a letter from prison that he sent to his parents, he wrote, but dad, I'm not real sorry for what I did because Carol and I had some fun, as we mentioned before. He was reportedly pretty indifferent about his impending death, he didn't seem to fear it. Mm -hmm. And he had kind of been resigned to his fate. After he was executed, he was buried in a cemetery in Lincoln, Nebraska. And that's the same cemetery, Emily, where five of his victims are also buried. Oh. Isn't that crazy? No, get him... Get him. I can't get him believe out. they did that. Put him put him somewhere else. Get him out. Again, it, it just it speaks to the fact that this was just a different day and age. Because mm-hmm. if that were to happen today, there's no way, no possibility that he would be buried in the same cemetery as some of his victims. Carol Ann Fugate was also convicted. She was convicted as an accomplice. And she received a life sentence on November 21st, 1958. However, Carol Ann was paroled in June of 1976 after serving 17 and a half years at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women. Interesting. Apparently, she later moved to a town in Michigan. And from what I was reading, she's still alive to this day. Well, she would, what, be in her 70s now? Let me see here. Math is hard. Well, she was 14. In 1958. 
Oh, so she'd be in her 80s. Close to 80s, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know where she is today, but I know for a long time she lived in Hillsdale, Michigan. Hmm. In total, Charles Starkweather killed 11 people in his murderous rampage and also two dogs, which makes him even more of a piece of shit. In my a baby book. and two dogs. Nobody deserves to be murdered. I know. But a baby and dogs. Just don't. Just don't. There have been quite a few references, as you could imagine, to the Starkweather killing spree over the decades in pop culture. There was a movie called Badlands with Martin Sheen that came out in 1973 and was based on the killings. It was a big hit and it even influenced singer Bruce Springsteen to write an album titled Nebraska, which came out in 1982 and the title track he wrote from Starkweather's perspective. And it's absolutely chilling. If you get a chance, definitely encourage you to check that one out. Also, I asked you earlier if you had seen the 90s movie, Natural Born Killers. Mm -hmm. And you haven't seen that, right? Mm -mm. You Mm -hmm. have to. So it stars Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis and also a very young Robert Downey Jr. way before he was Iron Man. We love RDJ. And he's like a whacked out reporter in this movie. It's crazy. It's directed by Oliver Stone, and it is just a wild ride. I will it's, watch it just for RDJ, honestly. You definitely have to. It's it's a mindfuck of a movie, and it's kind of a modern take on the killings. One of my favorite movies as a kid, I would say, and I guess that explains why I'm doing this true crime podcast, probably. But <laughs> um, definitely, definitely worth the watch. I think I was like 10 when I first saw that movie, so... Here's the thing. My parents had cable. They were gone during the summer and I was just there and I was able to watch whatever I wanted. <laughs> so I would watch rated R movies like Natural Born Killers. I have vivid memories of, um, I think I've told you this before, but my older cousins, like my first kind of horror movie, scary movie, rated R Scream. movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. At my grandma's house. Mm-hmm. And the image of Drew Barrymore hanging from the tree was like forever burned into my mind. And I don't think it's any coincidence that today my my favorite horror movie franchise is Scream. Even even the shitty ones. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I got. That is the uh, crazy, crazy case of Charles Starkweather, which I'm that sure. That was a wild one. Yeah, it was. And if you'd like to discuss that wild case or the Idaho student murders cases that we just discussed or any other cases, you can always go to our socials. Yes. Come hang out with us on Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast, Facebook, Unnatural a True Crime Podcast. You can send us a Gmail, unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. Also consider signing up for our Patreon page where you will get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. That is patreon.com slash unnaturalpod. 
And as always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, share us with your friends, and we will talk to you next week. Yeah. Another week, another murder. Another week, another murder. Probably. I'm guessing it's going to be a murder. Yes, actually it is. I actually know what I'm doing. It's your case, so. It is my case. (laughs) So, well, we will do that. And in the meantime, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. And unfortunately for August, his house just happened to be the first place within eyesight of Charlie Starkweather. Oh, no. Perfect. You did it again. The oh, no thing. Thank you. Shit. God damn it. Thank you. That That's where the break was. And I was thinking in my head, like, don't say oh, no, when he says something. That would make me want to say oh, no. I was trying. God damn it. You know what? Now I'm pissed. Now I'm pissed. I'm proud of myself. So I would watch rated R movies like Natural Born Killers. <laughs> Um, the first sneeze attack of 2023. Recorded, anyway. You have to include that. <laughs> I thought it was just your burps that I included. No, it's your turn. <laughs> okay, deal. Police custody. Custody. Custody?